In previous seasons, we opened each show reviewing cases of girls who are currently missing that we call the Aisha Alert. In our third season, we've decided to switch some things around. We will no longer be adding the Aisha Alerts into the shows, but will continue to post new cases of missing black girls on our social media each week. We encourage you to pay close attention to our Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram so that you can help us help the families who are still seeking answers and long for their loved ones' safe return. You are listening to Season 3 of Black Girl Missing, a podcast that covers stories of black girls who were reported missing when they were under the age of 18. When black girls go missing, their cases are severely underreported in mainstream media. We want to shift the narrative. We invite you to listen, learn, and do whatever you can to help us bring as many girls home as possible. Due to the sensitive and sometimes graphic nature of these cases, we advise you to use caution when listening. Welcome to season three of Black Girl Missing. I'm Nikki. I'm Asa. And I'm Feminista Jones. Oh we're so glad God. that you, we're back. So glad that we're back. I'm so <laughs> glad that we're back. Like we had a really long hiatus. We had a long hiatus. Wow. A lot's been going on. Ooh, the pandemic. Life the pandemic is kicking our ass. The vid. FJ's been in school. Oh man. Um, full disclosure. Um, part of our long break was due to. Uh, me have going through chemotherapy was really rough on me. I just really wouldn't have had the energy to record. So I appreciate everybody um, waiting for us and actually asking us where we were. Like that means yes. everything. Yes. People were like, yo, what what happened? And like, still tagging us in things and yes. sharing and showing yes. love. Mm-hmm. You all are amazing. Yes. We appreciate y'all. Very much. Yeah. So we're going to get this new season on the road. Yeah. All right. This evening, uh, we have uh, Ace is going to tell us about Erica Green. Yes. Okay. So I want to start off with an added extra sensitivity warning to this episode because we're talking about a deceased child and there are some very gruesome details in this story. So trigger warning, content warning, this may be an episode you will have to skip. Wow. Yeah, no. Wow. Yeah. Ooh, so, yeah, I think we're I think we're, I think we're prepared. I don't know. Like, let's do okay. it. Let's do it. Let's do this sister yeah. some justice. Yes. Erica Michelle Marie Green was born on May 15th, 1997 to Michelle Johnson, also known as Michelle Pierce, while she was incarcerated at Maybell Bassett Correctional Center for Larceny. Michelle was 8 months pregnant with Erica when she went in. Erica's stepfather, Harrell Johnson, was also in prison at this time for violating probation related to larceny and assault charges. Because prisoners were not allowed to keep their children once they were born, Erica was taken in and cared for by a friend of Erica's paternal grandmother named Betty Brown, who lived in Oklahoma. Betty Brown only had to show a driver's license and a Sam's Club membership card in order to be given custody of Erica. Pause. Excuse me. Yeah. No, we got to stop already. Season mm-hmm. three. Mm-hmm. Pause. Yeah. Um, Sam's Club, though? In, in 1997? Mm-hmm. That's all it took? Yeah. So um, 
the, fuck? the Department of Corrections never collaborated with the, par- the Department of Human Services to track where Erica went or monitor her treatment once she left, which led to a future lawsuit. Well, I'm glad at least. I mean, at least we know something because what the yeah. hell? How you just pass yeah. a baby over for uh, uh, Sam's Club and some chicken wings? Yeah. So uh, Michelle Johnson had multiple previous contacts with DHS, Department of Human Services, including one regarding drug use while pregnant with Erica. Prior to her prison sentence in 1997, Johnson lost custody of at least four children due to confirmed abuse and neglect in Illinois and Oklahoma. Two of those children were born testing positive for cocaine. Michelle Johnson was released from prison in October of 1997, but the Department of Corrections never notified Betty Brown or DHS of her release. Since being released, Johnson sporadically visited Erica unsupervised until April 2001, when both Michelle and Harrell Johnson came to take her to a family reunion in Kansas City, Missouri. However, according to Harrell Johnson's cousin, Lawanda Driscoll, they moved in with her in April along with six-month-old Markeisha Johnson, Harrell Johnson's other child. Wait a minute. Uh, That's a lot of information. Yeah, let's try to wrap our minds around what's going on here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the mom and the dad both get out of prison. Yes. And the dad ends up with another, like, random baby on the side that is not Michelle's. That is Michelle's. Later in the story, they confirm that Markeisha is um michelle and harrell's the uh other child got you okay okay so wait (laughs) wait a minute so there's a six month old does she have the baby in prison i believe so oh okay okay and so that when you know when you have a baby in prison they usually take the the child from you and then maybe Mm -hmm. they got reunited all right right, okay i gotta hear more i gotta hear more okay um, let's see. Where was I? Uh, Luanda described her cousin's treatment of Erica as abusive, stating that he would beat her for little things like crying or not eating. One day, she heard a loud bang coming from Erica's room, and for the next two days, she was kept in that room. The Johnsons told Driscoll that Erica was sick at first when she asked about where she was. In April 2001, on the evening that LaWanda Driscoll states having heard a loud bang coming from Erica's room, Harrell Johnson was reportedly high on PCP and alcohol. When Michelle Johnson returned home around 8 or 9 p.m., she saw Harrell and Erica standing in the bedroom. At this point, Michelle Johnson told Erica to go to bed, then left the room to take a bath. According to Harrell, Erica was quote-unquote being bad, and resisting their efforts to get her to go to sleep, and he became agitated because she would not obey him. I'd like to stop here and remind our listeners that at the time of her death, Erica Green was three years old. Oh, God. When, When Michelle Johnson came back to the room, Erica again was out of bed and standing up. Michelle asked Harrell, what is Erica doing standing up? He told her that he told Erica to stand up. Michelle stated that she then told him, well, that's my kid. I control her. That's your baby over there. Referring to Markeisha Johnson. What the hell? Okay. And I just want to also remind our audience that PCP is a hell of a drug. 
Oh, yes. PCP yes. is one of those drugs that will completely alter your brain functioning really quick, really awfully, will have you seeing things, thinking things, doing things completely out of you know, what's normal for you. Um, people on P- P- PCP have had some cannibalistic actions. They have engaged in some really horrifying things. Um, so I just want to give people some context with that because this man was high on this PCP. Right. Michelle Johnson then a- again told Erica to lie down. At that time, Michelle was sitting on the bed and Erica was standing a few feet from her with Harrell behind her. According to Michelle, it was at this point that Harrell raised his foot and kicked Erica in the head, causing her to collapse on the floor and immediately lose consciousness. Grown man Mm -hmm. kicking a three-year-old toddler, basically still, Mm -hmm. in the head. Mm-hmm. Michelle picked up Erica and took her to the bathroom, placing her in cold water to try and revive her. She was still unresponsive, not moving her arms or legs, and her eyes were rolled back into her head. Michelle knew that Erica was in need of medical assistance. After about 10 or 15 minutes, er- Michelle took Erica back to the bedroom and laid her on the floor. At this time, Erica remained unconscious and unresponsive, but her eyes were no longer rolled completely back into her head. The Johnsons knew Erica was in serious medical trouble, but they claimed that they didn't seek medical treatment for her because they both had outstanding warrants and feared going back to jail. Therefore, they decided not to get medical assistance for Erica. According to Michelle, she agreed not to call an ambulance, even though she thought that Erica would die without medical attention. So her fear of going back to jail was Trump more important her than her, her taking care of her child who needed medical mm-hmm. attention. And I'm also mm-hmm. just going to assume that, you know, that this man is an abuser, right? And that mm-hmm. she probably feared him too, right? Mm-hmm. And and probably felt like if I go against what he says, then maybe he'll kill me too. I wonder, you know what I mean? Like I have yeah, to that think that that could be part-, part of it as well. Right. I'm also wondering, though, if they are avid drug users, mm-hmm. how off is their judgment like consi- consistently? Like, And I'm not excusing mm-hmm. it, but mm-hmm. if you use drugs, especially hard shit like PCP, cocaine, things like that, your judgment is always going to be fucked up. Yeah. Right. There's, there becomes a, a, a disconnect from the perpetual mm-hmm. use and you're mm-hmm. not thinking right. rationally. Um, and it's also why children, small children are often removed from the care of people who are serious drug users or abusers because of how they can pull you out of the consciousness you need and the alertness you need to take yeah. care of a small child. Right. You're not making good decisions consistently. Mm-hmm. For the next 10 to 14 hours, Erica remained unconscious and unresponsive. The next morning, the Johnsons attempted to feed Erica, but she died without ever regaining consciousness and without responding in any way. Um, I'm going to stop here because uh, this is the time where if you were thinking about turning off uh, this episode, this is where you need to do it. Um, uh, I will also add timestamps into 
the episode description uh, after recording. After Erica died, they decided to get rid of her body. They waited until it got dark and then took Erica's body out through a window of the house. They took hedge clippers with them and took Erica's body to a nearby wooded area. Harrell took off Erica's clothes and gave them to Michelle. He then severed Erica's head with the hedge clippers, put it inside two garbage bags, and dumped the head into a dumpster at a nearby church. They left Erica's naked, decapitated body in the woods. This, After her- pause, pause. Mm-hmm. This is PCP. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when we were talking earlier about how it makes people do disgusting, ridiculous, outlandish things, they could have just put her body in a bag and Mm -hmm. tossed it, right? Right. But he was motivated to cut her head off. I have to believe that that was the PCP. PCP. A toddler, a three-year-old, a little tiny bitty body. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he may have so, even been seeing her, not as a child, child but yeah. like an animal or something. It something. Cha- it makes you hallucinate. It brings about mm-hmm. delusions. You know what I mean? So again, we are not excusing. It's not an excuse. Any but it might this. be an explanation. It, it could be an explanation for why he decided to to desecrate the body in this way. Mm-hmm. Um, after Harrell threw Erica's head into the church's dumpster, Michelle told him that people at the church would smell the head and find it. So they took her head out of the dumpster and walked down the street and threw it into the wooded area where they had left the body. They then returned home and climbed into their window, into their room through the window. On April 28th, 2001, during the search for a missing elderly man, police discovered Erica's body. Three days later, a 51-year-old man helping in the police's search efforts found her head badly decomposed. Because she was never reported missing, police could not identify her. She was named Precious Doe, and the community came together to help bring light to her case. Missing child advocate and Kansas City community activist Alonzo Washington said he spent four years working to get attention for Precious Doe because as a father, he did not want people to, quote, unquote, forget there was a child discarded like trash. Investigators had 3D models made of what she may have looked like prior to her death and also determined that she was about three or four years old. At one point, they believed that the remains could have been those of Ralea Wilson from Florida, whose case we covered in season one. Volunteers raised reward money handed out flyers, and organized rallies. America's Most Wanted wanted, featured the case several times, but no leads came. LaWanda Driscoll said Michelle helped hand out flyers about Precious Doe and even cried at a candlelight vigil for her. You know what? You know what? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. We want to have empathy. But it's very, very difficult. It's hard extremely with this with this situation with this woman knowing damn well that is her own child did she just not remember mm, she no because no, yeah. she was the one that gave all of the details Jesus Christ. 
the thing the thing about this that's really like bothering me like i know we're on video so we can see each other but everybody else can't see me but like i can't even really say too much because i am just disgusted just on top of the case by itself but the fact that you went to a candlelight vigil and cried over a baby that you murdered like girl you got some nerve i just i can't it just is i can't even wrap my mind around how somebody can be this duplicitous this dishonest this heartless this this is your child this is your child. And if you've ever met a three-year-old, like... You can't not adore them. They're just so tiny and they're so small and they're, like, learning so many things. And it just... I am disgusted. I can't even... I can't. Nope. <laughs> I just can't. This is a hard one. Yeah. Um, a short while later... Michelle Johnson left Kansas City and said she was returning Erica to the woman who had been raising her, Betty Brown. Driscoll said she told Michelle several weeks later that she thought the dead girl looked like Erica. She said, oh no, I have Erica here with me. Where was she? I'd have been like, because mm-hmm. as Driscoll, when was the last time you saw, you saw her? Since she was living in your house. Right. right. Like, when was the last time you saw her? This is the first time mm-hmm. you you talking about Erica? Nobody was asking about this baby to mm-hmm. see where she was? Oh, where's where's Erica? I haven't seen her in a while. Right. Come on, community. What happened? In December of 2001, the Jackson County Medical Examiner released the body for funeral and burial. Later, a sketch artist offered a third likeness. Even later, police and cemetery workers exhumed her body so that another 3D rendering of her face could be created. In spring of 2005, an Oklahoma man named Thurman McIntosh, Harrell Johnson's grandfather, called police saying he knew Precious Doe's identity, the identity of her mother, and the name of her killer. Though he... Though he called many times before, detectives either hadn't found his story credible or hadn't followed up. Wait a minute. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This whole time mm-hmm. somebody was telling the truth and they ain't bothered to follow up. I bet you if it was a little white girl, they'd oh, follow every lead. Every, every single lead. lead. Everything. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. Uh, Thurman eventually contacted Alonzo Washington, the community activist that had taken up this fight. And with his involvement, the police finally listened and his story checked out. Shout out to Alonzo Washington. If you happen mm-hmm. to ever hear this, this. we we really this support salute. you and we are very, very happy that you existed, that you cared enough about this baby to not let this go. Absolutely. Because mm-hmm. this is that's hard work. Yeah. Right. Yep. Because I'm just writing this and I was in tears writing this script and doing the research. So I couldn't imagine being there at the time. On May 5th, 2005, Precious Doe became three-year-old Erica Michelle Marie Green of Muskogee, Oklahoma. And the Johnsons, already having been in custody on unrelated warrants, were charged later that week. And Michelle's seven other children were either already in state custody, being cared for by family members, or were taken into custody. Okay, let's pause again. Mm-hmm. 
Michelle has eight children altogether. Correct. And we knew about Markeisha mm-hmm. and we knew about Erica. Mm-hmm. But the other seven, I mean, the other ones, they obviously they been taken. removed at different points or whatever. Mm-hmm. I, I wonder were any of, well, no, one, she was in jail. So, I mean. One of them, uh, earlier I said mm-hmm. that a few of them had been taken because yeah. of abuse and neglect, yeah. Um, yeah. confirmed abuse and neglect, or having cocaine in there. Yeah, system. that's true. Okay. So she's not practicing safe sex. She's not no. get she's not on any kind of birth. She just keeps having these babies mm-hmm. that keep getting taken away from her. Mm-hmm. In 2002, uh, backtracking a little bit, Michelle and Harrell Johnson had gotten married. From prison where he was serving time for an unrelated case, Harrell Johnson wrote letters to Michelle expressing regret for some undefined act. Mm. Later, McIntosh read the letters and heard Michelle Johnson threaten Harrell with life in prison. Ooh. Thurman McIntosh first called police about Erica's case in 2004. He called about 50 times in the months to come. The last time, he reported that he had confronted his grandson about the murder. In that call, McIntosh relayed details only the killer would know have known. 50 times this man tried. That's a damn shame. To, to bring some justice for this child. And he was ignored. This is why yeah. we say that police are useless and don't do their job. They really don't. Thank you. Absolutely useless. We're, we're put, we're, let's put the case right in your hands hey. and you ignore it? You still like ignore it. We are it. giving you the answers. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the time of their trial in September 2007, Michelle Johnson was 33 years old and Harrell Johnson was 29. Michelle pled guilty to second degree murder and testified against Harrell. She was sentenced to 25 years. During the trial, a pediatric neurosurgeon testified that if the couple had quickly sought medical attention for Erica, doctors probably could have reversed the damage. Yeah. And that's what makes this just even hor- more horrifying. And I've seen other you know, situations like this where they didn't get the attention soon enough for someone who could have been saved had the mm-hmm. people not been selfish. And that's the mm-hmm. most disgusting part of this, aside from the decapitation and things like that. This baby did not have to die. Right. Harrell was charged with first-degree murder, endangering the welfare of a child, abuse of a child resulting in death, and abuse of a child. He was convicted in October 2008 and sentenced to life in prison without parole. In 2017, several dozen Kansas City residents gathered at Hibbs Park to hold a birthday party for Erica on what would have been her 20th birthday. They have been committed since her body was first found to not letting her be forgotten. In April 2010, Larry Green, Erica's biological father, sued the Oklahoma Department of Human Services, the Department of Corrections, and the University of Oklahoma Medical Center for the death of his daughter. As he should. He believed she would still be alive if prison, prison officials had just notified DHS after she was born. Yep. We don't have any control or authority of the child because they're not in our custody, spokesman for the Department of Correction, Jerry Massey said. 
If there had just been a phone call, the child would have been placed in DHS custody, said the father's attorney, Paul DeMuro of Tulsa. I just don't think it's that much to ask for those times when a child is born in prison for those agencies to talk to each other. The lawsuit was later settled and Larry Green received an unspecified payment in the settlement and the agencies promised to develop procedures for DHS to find safe homes for babies born to mothers who are in prison. They care more about shackling women to their beds while they're delivering and all that stuff. They care more, you know, about that stuff than they do about the sexual assault that happens within the prisons that it leads to impregnant, you know, women becoming pregnant than they do about caring for these babies that are born. Like they do all the other stuff except protect the children that need to be protected. Mm-hmm. Because as we know, the United States doesn't give a shit about these kids. Absolutely. They say that no. they do. Absolutely not. They don't care. They mm-hmm. they don't care. especially not these black babies. Oh, and no. I'm thinking about what you said about their ages. They were kids doing this, not kids, but they, <laughs> they were, were very young. young. Right. They were very like, first of all, she was very young having all these babies. Mm-hmm. You had eight children before you turned 30. And had each and every last one of them taken away. But you know what's interesting is that I'm looking at her pictures, her, mm-hmm. you know, her mother. Um, I get it. Because there's a certain look that she has, probably before she started really getting into the drugs, that, yeah. you know, she was probably considered, you know, a hot girl or whatever. Yeah, for um, sure. And probably sought after. And I wish that we knew more about her background because I see a lot of deadness in her eyes yeah. and wondering mm-hmm. maybe what happened what to happened? her. Yeah. Right. right. We, we always have mm-hmm. to ask that question because I don't believe that anyone is Just naturally awful, right? Like this Never. is, this is a, this is a woman who started having babies at a young age and kept having them. And they kept getting mm-hmm. taken away and she kept yep. having them, probably yep. hoping that she'd be able to keep one and do mm-hmm. something by it and, and never got the opportunity because she could not get off the drugs. She right. remained involved with abusive men. You know what I mean? I'm looking at all mm-hmm. these situations and no, again, I, I want our listeners to know I'm not making any excuses, but we ne- would not but be it- who we are if mm-hmm. we didn't ask these questions and make these considerations. I I also think it matters to consider that when you're young like that and you're doing drugs and you are, and you're doing a lot of hard drugs, Drugs. right? that comes from somewhere. You don't just turn 18 and decide to start doing PCP. Like it doesn't work that Mm -hmm. way. A lot of times drug usage, especially hard drug usage is born from some sort of trauma. Trauma. Mm-hmm. I yeah, I really so, am curious about her upbringing and even his because he was mm-hmm. young too. Right, he was younger than her. Yeah. Um, so like it goes like when you we talk about the the factors of the the people involved in these cases, like right. We I think like the knee jerk reaction that most people have is that these people are bad, point blank period, um, born bad, lived bad, are gonna die bad, but. Outside of just what possibly the traumatic events in their home lives, you have to think of what 
supports and social safety nets were not available or made available to her? Why was there no um, mention of any drug rehabilitation treatment? Why was there no um, information on anything else DHS was working with her to do to either reunite her with her children or at least give her visitation? Um, What was her schooling like? What was there's there's so many factors that lead into who these people become. And for ease, people don't want to look at that because then you have to start figuring out, well, how do you fix this so that we do not keep creating people like this? And it's systemic in so many Mm -hmm. ways. And it doesn't actually do the system any favors for them to fix it. It doesn't do them any favors to say, we're going to remedy this by doing this. Mm -hmm. Having a plan doesn't get them paid. They need to have these problems because with these problems, they can apply for a grant to to remedy said problem, but they don't remedy it because they got to keep that check coming. Right. So in the meantime, oh, that's social work in a nutshell. Right. (laughs) In the in the the meantime, they can vilify these um, these mothers. They can vilify the fathers too. Like they can vilify these people and say, oh, they're welfare queens or they're bad moms or they're bad parents or they're drug addicts or whatever. But they don't ask, how did they get like this? Mm-hmm. They just want that check. They want that that grant. They want that program. We're going to make a program for moms who, you know, whatever, try to get their kids back. Okay, but are you really working with her? Or do you just want that check? They just want that mm-hmm. check. They don't give a shit about these people. Right. And that's what's frustrating for yeah. me to watch, to like go through these stories. And we always hear about, or we talk about these parents who just don't have it. They just, there's something's missing, mm-hmm. something's wrong. And they don't actually get help. It's always you have to fit a certain criteria in order for us to help you. Mm -hmm. But they're never going to fit that criteria because they're not the right demographic anyway. Right. And I think what, you know, for me, when I was looking into this, this mother said that when her daughter was kind of lifeless, she sang to her. And she knew she knew it was wrong. What had happened was wrong. But she mm-hmm. says she sang her favorite song to her. And I I, ha- I have to think coming from a social work, you know, background and being being in this and knowing how much the system has completely failed our people over and over, generation after generation, because they want our children in the system. Why? Because children that are in the foster care system are more likely to grow up and, and become low wage workers you know, Mm -hmm. who become kind of these drones in the system. So you're right, Nikki, they don't care about helping and offering support. But when I think of something like that, that there's something that connected with her. And, And we don't know her background. We don't know her situation. We know the outcome and what happened. But in that moment, she connected to something. And for me, I'm always, you know, as a social worker, I was always looking for that something. What there's something in the person that maybe I can connect to, to try mm-hmm. to help them see and want better for themselves. And had someone been paying attention to this woman, noticing that she was mm-hmm. putting out these babies or whatever, if they had maybe assigned her 
someone or put her in some transitional housing or somebody made an extra effort, they may have been able to connect to that thing in her that sang to her baby as she lay dying and could have intervened before this happened. And so I always look at it as a failure of these systems, a failure of supports. What are the interventions that could have happened? And when we think of Black women and the trauma that they carry, most of it starts when they're girls. So that's, I'm seeing a direct line between what may Mm -hmm. have happened to her growing up to what has happened to all of her children and this particular baby. And it disgusts mm-hmm. me and it's sad and it's horrifying. And and yes, she could have in that moment said, we're calling the ambulance, but she did it and the baby is gone. But I just don't think that this was a completely heartless, cold killer, you know, who right. didn't have these other things happening. Right. And, Especially and, because she didn't kick her. She did. Right. And then finding out that that's not even his kid. Mm-hmm. So now it makes sense when she said, this is my baby. Your baby is over exactly, there. Exactly. Right. He didn't, he didn't have to give a shit about her because she wasn't his. Mm-hmm. And that's another issue that we see a lot of times with mothers, single moms that are having, you know, have babies and they're looking for support, right? Because if you're living in poverty, mm-hmm. the best way for a black single mom to get out of poverty is to find a man that has some money mm-hmm. or at least you can share the financial responsibilities. You know, it's hard to let that go when this person is at least maybe hustling and trying to make sure you have some food. They keep a roof over mm-hmm. your head. They look like they was in a room situation, but it's better than being alone, you know, yeah. especially when Absolutely. you're, you're hooked on these narcotics. It's just, it's a lot, it's heavy. And we, we are trying and I, and I need people to understand when they listen to our shows. Again, I've said this several times that we're not making excuses, but we mm-hmm. have to give the explanations that others won't give, especially when it comes to black women and black mothers and black girls. We have to allow for them to also be human beings, even when they mess up, even when they do the worst Mm -hmm. possible thing that we can think of. We're trying to figure out how we can stop this stuff before it happens to other children. And the only way we can do that is to try to better understand what was going on with these parents and the people around them. So I hope people understand that. And also part of when we think about these stories from a systemic standpoint and we go all the way back to, you know, how did the mom grow up? What happened? It's not a a way for us to make an excuse or to Mm -hmm. say, um, Oh, well it wasn't her fault. That's not what we're doing. Not at all. Not at all. This came from somewhere and it's us giving them the opportunity to have their entire story told. Because right. a lot of times when you, if you look at these stories of these missing girls, when they do show up on the news, you're going to hear a little blurb about some, you know, someone's daughter ran away or whatever. And, oh, well, we're mm-hmm. going to charge the mom with neglect. Okay. Well, how did that even happen? Right. Like the media doesn't always go into those stories in depth. Um, and mm-hmm. unless your story is like viral, nobody gives a shit. Right. And right. on top of all of that, another reason we do the podcast is to not make these little girls aren't blurbs or, or blips in the news cycle they're humans they're little girls with people who love them with you know dreams aspirations things they like cartoons toys there, there's so much more to who these little girls were 
than them being a victim. And we can't separate that because we've seen the separation of black girls and black women's humanity and how that like ripples through society and how we are continued to be treated and why we don't get any help and resources when we do go missing. Absolutely. Um, or we become memes. Or we become memes, yeah. right? And and we don't want these kinds of cases to be um, memes. You know, in this show, we cover girls that have gone missing and are still missing. We cover mm-hmm. girls that have gone missing and have been found. Um, and we cover the girls that have, you know, been found deceased or have been murdered um those are the hardest ones for me because Mm -hmm. there's no hope right of of having a positive outcome but we we started this because we know that we believe that their stories need to be told and so this is a, a story that needed to be told baby erica we we say your name we remember you you deserve more out of this world than what you got but we love you and um yeah this was a tough one yeah <sighs> but we'll see you on the next go around thank you bye, for y'all. tuning in bye black girl missing podcast is researched written and produced by three concerned black women who want justice for missing black girls today's episode was written by asa todd produced by nikki irene And the Black Girl Missing theme was produced by Siraj Khalif. Be sure to follow us on social media. On Twitter, we are BLK Girl Missing. On Facebook, we're at Black Girl Missing Pod. On Instagram, we are at Black Girl Missing Podcast. Visit our website for more information about each case, blackgirlmissingpod.com. Contact us on social media or email us at blackgirlmissingpodcast at gmail.com with any tips, feedback or names of girls you want us to look into you can support black girl missing by subscribing to our patreon where you where you will receive exclusive behind the scenes content and bonus episodes go to patreon.com slash black girl missing podcast and subscribe today we really appreciate the support